Well, good morning, saints. This morning we start a new series in the book of 1st John. John. Let's talk about John this morning. When John wrote his first epistle, you might know as we've mentioned before, John is also the author of the gospel that bears his name, three letters, and the book of Revelation. When John wrote his first epistle, his first letter, John was old. He was elderly at this point. That's going to play predominantly in what I'd like to speak to this morning as we kind of set the terrain, set the foundation for this wonderful letter that we'll be parked in for a bit. You see, the John that Jesus called to follow him and the John that is now writing this letter advanced in age they're not the same not the same person the same individual but he had been deeply transformed by the life of God in him and the power of the gospel as he sat under the direct tutelage of Jesus himself and then learned to walk with him as we all need to learn to do after the Lord returned to heaven. So I'd like to set the stage by this by taking us back to the teachings of Jesus. There was a man who decided to make a trip that was by nature quite perilous. Decided to travel a road that many would say was that was an ill-advised move. Unfortunately for him, the peril of that road became very evident when he was jumped, robbed, and left for half dead. Now, as he lay on the road, beaten and bruised and doubtless bleeding out, I'm sure he was thinking to himself, as I would if I were in his shoes, I sure hope help comes soon. He clearly was unable to get up in his own power. Maybe fading in and out of consciousness, we don't know, but he was roughed up pretty bad. Thankfully, after a period of time, somebody did come his way. And somebody did see him. Imagine how he must have felt when he saw that individual approaching. And maybe he perceived and could see that this individual was a priest. Thank God. A religious leader who surely knows the heart of God and will render aid that I so desperately need. But you might know what happened next. That priest, the religious leader, took note of our friend bleeding out on the road. 
And rather than stop and tend to his fellow human being, he did something very notable. He ignored him. But as he ignored him, he was very careful to actually walk as far away from him on the road as he possibly could. Because you see, our priest friend missed the heart of God by a million miles. He was more concerned with outward shows of religiosity. I'm sure he might have had his religious duties to tend to that made him blind to a guy who was dying right next to him. And to show how religious he was, he not only ignored him, but he walked as far away as possible from him so as not to become unclean as he doubtless headed towards his religious services. Imagine how our friend felt. Unable to get up by himself and a religious leader walks right past him. Ah, but there's someone else coming. Surely this guy will help me. Oh look, he's a Levite. He's a religious leader as well. I don't know what happened with the other one, but thank God that he brought these people by my path to help me in my time of need. You probably know what happened next. Well, he did the exact same thing as the priest. He ignored him and he walked as far as possible because God forbid that he would become ceremonially unclean. How far from the heart of God they had become. How is it even possible to walk past someone in that condition in their time of need, what could possibly be so pressing on your agenda that you would ignore him as he bleeds out? Every word of God is tested. Jesus was far from a soft leader or teacher. He was literally flipping the script. And he was making a very cutting point for those who would listen to him. As you probably know, there was indeed a third person who came. This individual had no academic accolades, most likely. Never went to seminary. Didn't wear the cloth. Had no standing, most likely, in the religious community. As we say, just a regular Joe. Oh, but this guy, he saw his neighbor in need. He did what is not only the right thing, but the only conceivable, natural thing to do. Whatever he was doing, he stopped. He rendered aid. He took care of him. 
And not only that, but he helped him to a place that where he could find rest and restoration. And he made it a point to say, look, if anything else comes up, here's my credit card. You just put it on my tab. The significance, of course, that guy was a Samaritan. So now imagine yourself as a Jewish listener listening to this rabbi, Jewish rabbi teach. And he literally flips everything on its head. The antagonist is the Jewish religious leader. The hero is a no-name, pardon me, good-for-nothing, half-Jew, Samaritan, that they hate. Racism runs deep. Jesus was exposing the heart of the matter. Jesus was showing that all of your religiosity piled up to the moon and back is not most often what God is looking for. Listening undoubtedly that day was a younger guy by the name of John. John would have a front row seat to the teaching of this rabbi who literally came out of nowhere. Jesus would listen time and time again as he would speak counter to the religious establishment. He would watch as he would manifest the power of God that was resting upon him as he would do what the religious leaders could never do. He would heal people. The reason why I'm taking time to set the scene is this. When Jesus first met John and his brother James, Jesus gave them a surname or a nickname, Sons of Thunder. Read, tempestuous, rough around the edges. Let me give you an example. On one occasion, John and his brother, they were a part of Jesus, as you know, as a disciple, one of the twelve. He was, they were one of the, the inner core. They traveled with Jesus wherever he went. And on one occasion, Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem. And the way the route took them was right through a Samaritan village. Remember... Racism, Jews hate Samaritans, Samaritans hate Jews, and it was just like that all of the time. Contempt and anger. So Jesus did something that undoubtedly kind of ruffled the feathers of his disciples. Rather than do what other leaders would do and go like this around the Samaritan village to get to Jerusalem. Jesus said, no, no, we're actually going to take the easiest route and we're going to go straight through. So they get to the village. Jesus sends people ahead of him to make preparations. 
And they on the receiving end of things say, oh no, you don't. You're not coming through our village. His Jewish rabbi is not having anything to do with us. We know what he's about because he's on the way to Jerusalem. He's a Jewish rabbi. Remember the hate goes and the contempt goes both ways, right? There's no heroes there. So news gets back to Jesus and to our two little friends, John and James. And John turns to Jesus and asks the the perceptive question. Should we call down fire? Like, should we do that now? Or wait just a little bit? When should we do this? The tempestuous one. Sons of thunder. But you see, time with Jesus, learning to walk with him after the resurrection would have an effect on John. You see, when John sat down to write his memoirs, the Gospel of John, you might know that there are four Gospel accounts, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptics through the same lens. They're, they're very similar. John came and did something completely different, and it was very beneficial for those of us who don't have direct Jewish background. John writes his Gospel By the time that John had settled down, by the time that John would write an account about Jesus of Nazareth, do you know what he called himself? He would refer to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. That's his name. You see... He was a short fuse. He was the tempestuous one. But time with Jesus, now baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, was changing him. He wasn't the same guy that he was back then. It was sufficient for John. Of course, he didn't mean that he's the only one that Jesus loved. But how he wanted to be known was this. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves John. And I don't care about anything else. The very one who exuded contempt and hatred for people who were not like him would talk more about love than any biblical author hands down. Period. You will see in the book of John that love plays predominantly. This way to God and naturally is an outflow this way to the people around us. John will show us, born from his own testimony, that the life of God in an individual will never leave that individual the same.
I'll say that one more time. The life of God in regular people will transform us to be more like Christ. It'll look different for all of us, but those rough edges, those deep-seated feelings, the Lord will begin to unearth and do away with. The New Testament refers to that as justification, being made right with God, being saved, and sanctification, being made like Christ. From glory to glory, we will be transformed to be made more and more like Christ. It is the work of God in us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us until one day we stand in his presence and we are completely and forever glorified. That is the wondrous, beautiful gospel promise that is made in Romans chapter Eight, that we will be conformed to the Son of God. With that little introduction, let's read the first handful of verses in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Remember, this is a sermon series, so I'm taking time to kind of set the terrain, set the foundation as we go through it. First John chapter 1, you heard Vinny earlier on read from John's gospel chapter 1. Notice how similar it is and how he begins. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you as well may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to you so that our joy might be complete. This is the beginning of John's first letter. There are three truths that I would like to lift out of these first handful of verses that I believe will serve us well as we walk through this little letter. The first one is this. The historicity of our Christian faith. The historicity of our Christian faith. My pastor growing up would always remind us 
that our faith is not an ideology, a philosophy that was made up as the disciples sat dumbfounded around a campfire trying to figure out how to put to a good twist the fact that their leader just died. Remember when Peter preached his first sermon that we have, Acts chapter 2, the very first recorded Christian sermon, if you will, where the gospel was proclaimed? Do you remember what Peter said? Peter appealed to David's writing to establish that the resurrection was not a surprise. But he said, guys, let's not be confused here. When David talks about the resurrection, he's not talking about himself. We know that because his tomb is right over there. It's a known fact that where Peter spoke on that Pentecost day was likely about a quarter mile from the empty tomb of Jesus. You see, in real time, Peter essentially was saying, you can fact check me anytime you like. David's tomb, well, we know where he is and we know it's untouched. But Jesus' tomb, well, that stone is not in the same place. And there's nobody home. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church? This is a key Awana verse. 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection passage in the New Testament. A long passage, a long chapter that talks about the resurrection in which he teaches us that without the resurrection, there is no Christian faith. If there's no resurrection, then our faith is in vain. Paul would tell the Corinthians in verse 3 and 4 that I proclaim to you that which was of most or first importance, that Christ died for our sins, watch, in accordance with the scripture. Meaning, there's no plot twist here, there's no surprise, there's no shock. This was God's plan. And that he was buried, lest you think he wasn't actually dead. And that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul would go on to say in that very passage that a crowd of 500 or so saw him. Like this was beyond dispute. The reason why this is important is this. Every generation and most cultures will have their own explanation of Life, how we got here, where we're going, how we should live, and right on down the line. The New Testament is remarkably different. Because 
Half the time when you're reading the New Testament, the authors are saying, yeah, just like he said back here. Do you remember where David said this or Isaiah said this hundreds of years ago? And the awkward thing was the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures were just that. They were a distinctively Jewish collection of writings. And now these apostles were taking that to the entire world, saying, listen, you need to listen to this. Acts chapter 7, Mars Hill. Notice what John says. This is so important. Verse 1. That which we've heard, we've seen, we've touched. And then he says it again. He is coming to you as an eyewitness. He is coming to you as someone who personally knew the person of which he's speaking to. Like this is not secondhand knowledge to him. Guys, we were there. We rubbed shoulders with him. We walked with him. We lived with him. And the beautiful thing about the New Testament, the beautiful thing about the gospel accounts, is they don't cover up all the mistakes and the blunders they made. In no way, shape, or form are they elevating themselves. I mean, I'm just saying, if I were Peter, I'd be a little miffed at my disciple friends. Because they were very careful and intentional about including all the times that I put my foot in my mouth along the way. Even when I failed miserably. And for crying out loud, John, I mean, I thought he was my friend. But when we get to the punchline, the resurrection, John, hang on. I beat him to the tomb. I was there first. I mean, these are just a, a bunch of guys who couldn't get it straight. But they were changed. They were transformed. They were not reformed. In the sense that they were not made to be a better version of who they were before by trying their hardest. At the heart level, they were transformed. And so these guys who could not get it right, who were trying to call down fire from heaven, denying they ever knew him, and rebuking Jesus, that was Peter, rebuking him the first time he broke the news about the death and the resurrection. Peter's like, no. He pulled Jesus aside. Please, stop that silly talk. We're going to go crush the Romans. Make that your message. Ah. But the historical individual, it is beyond dispute by any scholar worth their salt that Jesus, a real person who lived, the Son of God, who laid down his life for you and for me. Secondly, this is a big one. And John hits this right in the very beginning. A key word, fellowship. Brothers and sisters, the foundation of our fellowship is nothing other than 
the person and the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul speaks about the gospel to the Corinthians in these terms. He says that God, through the gospel, has called us into fellowship with God. It's what we've been speaking to the last two months. This idea of reconciliation. Fellowship means to share the common life. What is common for us in this room is Christ. I don't think there has been a time in recent history when we need to be reminded of that more strongly than right now. I can throw out any headline over the last month or two and I'm going to have people promptly lining up on two different sides. Do not make your church to be the place where your fellowship is founded upon anything other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The beautiful thing about the church This matters as the New Testament develops the theology, the concept of the church of Jesus Christ. There was this massive shift and you can see it as you read through the book of Acts, the first 10 chapters. It used to be that God was working primarily and virtually exclusively through the Jews. And so Pentecost took place in Jerusalem. That's where the church was started. That's where the action was initially. That's where the apostles were persecuted. But then something remarkable happened. The Lord very sovereignly used persecution in Jerusalem to flush believers out of Jerusalem to the other parts. Acts chapter 8. Samaria. Isn't that interesting? John who wanted to call down fire on these guys in the Lord's sovereign will, the first place where the gospel outside of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Where did it take root? Oh, in Samaria. The Samaritans. And then you move two more chapters in, chapter 10, the first Gentile, Cornelius. Now he's in. And the gospel begins to flourish in all these different areas and cultures and traditions. And if you want to understand the force of that, read Acts chapter 11 where they go back to the Jerusalem church and report about what just happened with a Gentile. They don't even know what to say. Peter's like, look, I'm just telling you, this is what happened. I mean, I I was just obeying God and going to this guy's house. And I hadn't even stopped talking yet. And the spirit came down on them, just like he did on us. Oh, read their response. They were amazed. They sat silent. Because God 
was granting repentance to the Gentiles, just like he was the Jews. Now, here's why this matters. There really is no such thing as a blank church, ethnicity, or whatever it is that you would consider yourself to be distinct from other believers. New Testament-wise, there is one church. One church, a new nation, a group of people. And all of these people in here are going to be different on many surface level issues. Color of their skin, ethnic background, culture, political views. All of those things. Did you know in the church there are even Dallas Cowboy fans? I'm just, I'm just telling you, they exist. Of course, I'm kidding, right? But you see, we can joke about those types of things, but when we get to the matters that are more close to our heart that we feel so strongly about, may I appeal to you? Paul said, to the, again, to the Corinthians, when I was with you, I desired to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Can we do the same? That's our testimony. It might get a little cantankerous at times. Trust me, every pastor in 2020 knows that. But at the end of the day, God willing, we talk it out. And we know our foundation. Our foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the most beautiful, beautiful thing about the church that I absolutely love. I love it. When I'm at somewhere local, I don't know, the gas station, coffee shop, wherever, I meet someone that I've never met before who's a believer, reading the Bible, whatever. We're talking, and it's as if we're best buddies because we have Christ in common. But you know what's even better? I'm so thankful for the ability to travel, to visit our missionaries, to travel in different parts of the world. And then you show up, they don't speak your language. They don't look like me at all. Nine times out of ten, their food is much better than what we have here. It's funny how that works out under my watch. But, listen. There's a bond that takes place. And you're standing there, whether it, in my case, whether it's Kazakhstan or Romania or West Africa or Brazil and you're worshiping. Sometimes there are songs that we're familiar with, but obviously they're singing in a different language. And it's the most beautiful, rapturous thing. And you sit down, maybe through an interpreter, and you listen to someone tell their story, and you're thinking to yourself, that is exactly what I would hear in my church. God save me. God is kind. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I fail him every single day, but I love him and I know he loves me. And there are outward elements of that that will look different. There are expressions of worship and so forth. They'll look different here versus here or here over here. But what is in common is what John says here. We testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. That's Christ, the Word, the Son of God.
Remember John captured the great high priestly prayer, John 17. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That is eternal life. It is not making a decision, quote unquote, years ago. It is knowing Christ personally as your savior. Third, I want to highlight his usage of the word joy. Fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Fellowship with other believers is the most beautiful thing you will ever experience this side of glory. It's worth fighting for. You know why? Because all those other things that we joked about a little, a little while ago or referenced, they get in the way. We lose our focus. We begin to align ourselves with this or that or that or the other. And those things are important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying don't speak to, to important matters. I'm simply saying all of that has to be predicated and founded upon Christ and his word and his truth. But saints, when we know Christ and when we are diligent to ensure that the distractions, the discouragements, the temptations do not cloud our view or harm our fellowship with God. The joy is beyond description. And Christian joy, here's the thing, Christian joy is not, it is not your circumstances. Because look, let's just be honest. Our circumstances are often on the downside. Can you imagine just for a moment all the health and wealth prosperity guys preaching in a New Testament context? I mean, Jesus said, look, I'm just telling you, you're going you're gonna to face persecution, but just this is your consolation. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Paul, I mean, how do you tether that message to Paul? I mean, his own testimony. Book of Acts. Goes to one city, gets the tar beaten out of him. Somehow gets up again, goes to the next city in obedience to the Lord and preaching the gospel, the true gospel. Left for half dead. Somehow gets up. It's a new day and it's a new city and there's a new trial awaiting me. But it's worth it. Peter, I mean, Peter just flat out tells us He says, you're going to face grief in trials in many, many different ways, be it persecution or otherwise. You're going to face them. But you need to remember the singular promise of the gospel and the singular flatline foundational promise is that you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And you will be transformed from glory to glory in this life. And oftentimes it's not pleasant. 
But it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And then one day you will stand in glory and you will be conformed in every way to the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, free from temptation and free from harm forever. I take you to 1 Peter chapter 1. I just kind of summarized the first little bit of that chapter. But I want you to look, I don't have a slide, but I want you to look at verse 8. Speaking of Christ. Though you have not seen him, Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him. Here's the guy who said, I've seen him. Second Peter chapter 1. Or two. John said the same thing. We've seen him. But now we're in a different era because Christ is in heaven. But John says, Peter says with the rest of them, though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though, though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And in the midst of your storms, your trials, your difficulties, your heartaches, Oh, you believe in him. And you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. George, unspeakable, King James, filled with glory. Why? Because you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Saints, as we travel through this first Letter from John. I want to encourage you to read this little book every single week. It's five chapters. That's one chapter a day, and you can have the weekends off because you're going to hear it from me on Sunday anyway, right? So read it through, and you're going to find remember, this is ancient Near Eastern writing. It's not going to mirror what you are likely used to. He kind of spirals throughout the whole letter. He, he moves on, but then he goes back to what he said before. And he'll say it in a different way. Notice when you read through this letter, John's usage of contrasts. Light and darkness, for example. Pay attention to those. I will say up front you are going to find application for both believers and unbelievers alike in this letter. My express prayer and desire and purpose is that the Lord will speak through his word to those who need to hear what they need to hear. You are going to find unbelievable comfort in this book and encouragement. If you're honest with yourself, you're also going to feel conviction. That's needed. Not guilt, not shame. Conviction. We're going to see the life of God in regular people. The new birth, regeneration. It is so important. I leave you with this passage. You might still be in 1 Peter. So I want to read to you from 1 Peter chapter 2. You've heard me read this before. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is straight Old Testament verbiage applied to us. A people for his own possession, God's possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received, you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, it is part and parcel of living in a Christian, especially in our generation, in our culture. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's bow and prepare our hearts for prayer. The subject at hand in this tremendous letter is the life of God in the hearts of people. Light and darkness, love for God, love for our neighbors. Not straining to live and to meet the teachings of Jesus, but beginning to naturally do it because God has changed our lives. A godly life as the fruit and the product of the Spirit of God living in each other as we determine personally to walk with the Spirit every single day and throughout the day. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is this. He suffered in the place of sinners He died, was buried, and rose again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the power of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the truth that the gospel is powerful. Your life inside of us, transforming us, changing us to be more like Christ. We thank you for that. We thank you for grace. We pray as we pay attention to John's words that we would increase, particularly in our intentionality, to love you and to love those around us. To say no to sin and to walk in righteousness. We pray that our joy would truly Be full as we do just that. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.